Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. Today, we are featuring one of our The Business of Caring podcast episodes. And I'm so honored to invite Dr. Yuval Barr back. Dr. Barr is a specialist in finances when it comes to physicians. I think this is a topic that just needs more attention than it's getting. This is kind of a soapbox, but primary care is so important. And we can't have primary care without having primary care doctors. And I think one of the issues specifically in primary care and the physician shortage is that doctors feel sometimes undervalued, underpaid, undercompensated when it comes to primary care. And so many doctors are choosing to go into what they perceive to be higher paying specialties. Um, But in my experience, a well-positioned primary care doctor who's smart about their finances in the long run could potentially be much more secure than maybe a specialist that has quote unquote higher earning potential. So that's why I am particularly interested in this conversation. I want all, you know, budding physicians to consider how you approach your finances in your first job. And, you know, sometimes the highest appearing paycheck may not be the best for your long-term future. Dr. Borrower is going to tell us about what young physicians need to be thinking about when they are choosing and signing on for their first job, whatever it may be. Dr. Borrower, thank you for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to join you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So I was once a long, long time ago, a young physician um, just out of residency. I didn't know anything about medicine, much less anything about the finances of becoming a physician. It's crazy when I think about how little we were prepared for anything, especially our financial future. Um, And if I'm like most young doctors, you know, I'd spent my life basically with zero money, you know, all just constantly grinding to pay through college, pay through med school, you know, and I'm not complaining. It was very exciting and challenging times. But, you know, when you spend your entire life building towards something, you know, used to living on very little money, and then you have this first contract before you and seems like so much money, it's really easy to make those very quick mistakes. So take it from here, Dr. Boro. In your experience, what are the things that young doctors don't know about their finances and their first jobs that they really need to? So there's a short list, probably half a dozen items. I typically think of them as items that the young physicians need to know about when they are just on their own. They don't have any dependents. And then on top of that, there are a few other items that they should be considering if they do have dependents. Dependents mm-hmm. may be children, uh, spouse, partner, elderly parents, and so on. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have even thought of that because I just think about myself and I'm like, oh, I can barely take care of myself. I certainly was in no position to have kids or a spouse, but I suppose there's plenty of young doctors finishing up that are already married kids, like you said, elderly parents. Great. So yeah, let's hear it. So we'll start assuming no dependents because that is yeah. a common uh, circumstance. We're talking about folks who are in mid, mid to late 20s. Mm-hmm. They've just taken on that, as you pointed out, that first uh, contract. And the numbers may look very big because it's the first time uh, folks have been earning that kind of money. Uh, there are some of the stresses and strains that I think you alluded to in primary care. Looking at those numbers, they may seem large, but they're not as large seeming as perhaps specialty paths. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're carrying loans, which is one of the items we'll talk about, that adds additional stress and might direct you to a particular specialty uh, that's not primary care because you're concerned about making ends meet. So right. my first message to everyone is that on if we look at the primary care earnings, average earnings, and there are lots of these statistics that, that are around, they're in excess of $200,000 on average these days. Uh, that is a very, very decent amount of money to be making year in, year out over 20, 30 year career. And you can achieve all of your goals with that kind of income because that is the 97th, 98th percentile income in the country. So mm -hmm. uh, you're well positioned because one of the great things about being a physician, uh, you know, we have on the one hand, the list of the challenges and, and difficulties and the blood, sweat and tears. But on the other side, we have this great income potential. Uh, and that helps to resolve a lot of financial issues. In fact, all of them, as long as we are disciplined. So as long as you recognize mm. <laughs> what you should and should not be spending on, and you use the money you have efficiently on a $200,000 annual salary, you can realistically amass millions of dollars, $4 million over a 30-year career is absolutely not out of the realm of possibility. That includes paying down student debt, funding kids, uh, college educations, and so on. Wow. So and purchasing a home uh, it may not be a castle but it will be mm -hmm. starting with a starter home and then working one's way up so uh leading a, a financially disciplined life means that all of those dreams are available to you you can mm -hmm. do all of them the key is not to, to be pulled off in fads and invest mm -hmm. in money losing enterprises that always seem very exciting so let's take a step back now and uh and talk about what are some of these disciplined activities and, and typical priorities uh, that are important. And I should mention that uh, you've had me on before, you know, I could talk forever. So <sighs> you need to rope, you know, to rope me in and, and sort of, <laughs> otherwise I'll just go through my list. Um, but the, the first thing to consider would be loans. And of course, some of the audience do have loans and some don't. If you have mm -hmm. loans, this is relevant for you. If not, it's less relevant, but you may in fact accrue loans in the future. So it's not, it's not bad to understand debt and avoid bad debt and only take on good debt. Uh, and when I say good and bad debt. Good debt is debt that you take on as an investment in yourself or in other things you're doing. So it's mm -hmm. it be good debt to, to take on a loan for a mortgage to buy a home because now you're not paying rent. Instead, you're building up equity and value. That would be a good example mm -hmm. of taking on debt. Taking on mm -hmm. debt to go to medical school is considered to be a good thing because it creates these career opportunities. But taking on debt to then go do a two-year trip around the world and, and <laughs> overspending is not a good idea. Uh, right in most circumstances so so we distinguish between good and bad debt now let's assume you have some debt and for most physicians if they have debt, it's typically school debt education debt so you need to think about loan repayment options mm -hmm. you get your first contract the first full-time job this is where those student loans in particular begin to come due so you have to make sure that you're being very careful about how to to repay and it's additionally important to recognize whether you're going to be targeting something like PSLF, Public Service Loan Forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the keys. The first one is to get used to and make sure you're budgeting for repaying the debt. And then if you want a specialized, uh, to be in a specialized program like Public Service Loan Forgiveness, then you have to make the right choices. So when you borrow the money, and I'm speaking from personal experience, you know, you're signing on a dotted line and you're like, I need this money. Like, it seems like a lot, but you really have no idea what those payments are going to be when it comes time to repay. Because, you know, at the, at the 
shortest amount, you know, it's seven years from when you sign for your first loan before you're expected to make a, a loan repayment, right? So what would you, let's just say the average medical student um, borrows $200,000 to finance their education, which I, I think is about right. I'm kind of guessing, I don't really remember, but what would a monthly payment be on that kind of student debt? Could, do you know that off the top of your head? Not off the top of my head, but it, but there are some simple calculations one can make just to get a sense of at least the interest rate burden. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By the way, the $200,000 number, I believe, is fairly accurate. Yeah, I yeah. That correctly. That's for indebted students, I think, on average, have about 200000 in debt, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I should mention for everyone's benefit that there is a website, PillarsOfWealth.com, where they can find all these details. So nice. The most uh, recent uh, average debt numbers are listed there under the debt section and so on. And free resource for everyone. Uh, so the calculation, suppose a, a $200,000 loan, if we say that the interest rate is 6%, then 6% of 200,000 is, I believe, $12,000 a year. So so that already gives one, us uh, the order, an order of magnitude of roughly how much would we need to pay just in the interest alone, uh, wow. but making a $12,000 payment a year, which is a thousand a month yeah is, is then just the interest we are not wow. anything mm -hmm. at that point to actually take the 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 principal down mm -hmm. so you probably have to pay two or three times that to, to really be taking a, a decent chunk out of the uh the principal as well wow so you're uh i don't know why i'm acting so surprised i literally did this but it's all coming back to me so that's all that's how much it would be to buy a house and have like a nice size house and have a mortgage payment. We're talking like two to three thousand dollars a month. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So immediately I'm a young doctor and I'd be intimidated. So great, great information. All right. So you have to plan for that. Yes. Now, unfortunately, it gets worse, right? And why, <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean that we are currently in an interest rate environment that is unusual. We're at roughly 40 year high in terms of interest rate environment. So uh, what that means is that whereas some uh, students who may have been borrowing at 6% over the last, uh, up until two years ago or so, now anyone taking out new loans might be paying more like eight or 9%. Mm. Makes all these numbers even more scary potentially. Now, the, right. the good news, again, as I pointed out uh, in sort of my introductory comments, is that, yes, those numbers seem large, but your income also is actually large. And as long as you are disciplined mm -hmm. and recognize what your priorities should be and don't allow yourself to get pulled off on, on fatty investments or other things that seem exciting but are not really grounded in, in reality, as long as you're disciplined, you can make all these ends meet. You can pay off your loans. You can pay off a house. You can put enough money away for a dignified a dignified retirement and have your, your family enjoy the prosperity that, that you deserve for all your hard work. So it's mm -hmm. all possible. The key is to, to, to not make silly mistakes early on, avoidable mistakes, I should probably refer to them. Mm -hmm. So like what? I guess you're getting to that. So for example, you know, the, the, every once in a while, there's some financial investing craze that overwhelms typically younger folks which is understandable because we're all, you know, at a young age, when we finally have some money, we feel like, okay, now we can do something and we can do something more aggressive. And of course, all around us, our friends are, are 
chatting about <laughs> there will always be a couple of folks in, in our group who who are more aware of financial investments and other things. And so they're talking our ear off and telling us that they made money on this or that or the other. And of course, in recent years, that's been cryptocurrency has been all the rage. Uh, but we've also seen how these lofty values that some of these fatty fat investments uh, accrue also they can lose them very quickly mm -hmm. so bitcoin went up to sixty thousand dollars per coin uh and then down to twenty thousand mm. and now it's struggling in the mid-30s so anyone who invested at the peak at sixty thousand have lost more than 50 percent of their investment or close to that wow. which is wow. devastating and, and that's mm -hmm. those avoidable mistakes are what i'm referring to because with it, it unmistakably we see these patterns where something cool will be will come into our consciousness our friends will start talking about it and they'll tell us how much money they made and we start to feel that fear of missing out we don't want to be mm -hmm. the only fools in our group who didn't invest mm -hmm. look foolish because you know as physicians you know we're smart people and we like people mm -hmm. who think we're smart so we want to be able to say when someone else says oh yeah i invested in this and made 200 percent," we want to be able to say well i made 250 percent uh, that's a pretty natural inclination the, the, the right. challenge for us is that we have high debts we have high income and we're putting that income at risk by chasing these fatty things and we still have those big debts. So it's very dangerous mm -hmm. for us to go off the beaten path and we don't need to because the beaten path has been beaten for a reason. It's <laughs> the way to do things. Right. So, and the other thing that I always uh, like to mention here is that remember the people around you are, are chatting about all their successes. That's precisely what they're doing. We love to tell people about how smart we were and how we made these amazing investments and made a killing. But we conveniently don't mention <laughs> when we lost a lot of money because it's embarrassing. Mm. Mm. So there's a real selection bias in, in what we hear. And if we filter that properly, then we realize that, OK, there's a lot of risk to these things. And we there hasn't been enough time to resolve this particular fad. And when it does resolve, 80 percent of that value is going to disappear because it never deserved to have that value. You don't want to be the person losing that 80 percent or 60 percent. Right. So, so that's a really important high level message. And, and younger physicians, younger people tend to be more overconfident and succumb to that fear of missing out and, and, and joining in on these rallies and buying high and ended up selling ending up selling low after those bubbles burst. So great. So just to recap so far, so plan for your student loan repayment, have a good idea of what that payment is going to be, really understand that. And Avoid the fad investment uh, that may be so tempting when you have all this, you know, liquid cash that you're not used to having. Uh, what else? So uh, if uh, I guess we can leave the loan items aside because we could talk a lot about that. But just because some of your audience may not uh, have loans, there's a lot more that can be said. Uh, maybe I'll make a one liner. If you are pursuing public service loan forgiveness, oh, right. paper, then just make sure that you've got the right type of loans, that you're on the correct repayment plan and that your employer is eligible uh, for you to, to, to be included in the program. And then you've got to make your 10 years worth of payments and have, have the balance forgiven. So uh, just be aware, if you're pursuing PSLF, make sure you've crossed the T's and dotted the I's and understand what you're supposed to be doing and not doing and, and, and toe the line there. Mm -hmm. uh, so moving on to other items, purchasing a home. Now, this is the point in one's career where, where the money is beginning to come in and you're starting to think about various investments, including potentially a home, uh, after perhaps having paid rent for, for a decade plus, uh, it can be very appealing for, for a lot of good reasons to be a homeowner. Uh, so you just need to make a good decision regarding home ownership. Is it the right time for you? 
a rule of thumb that most people point to, and I'm not a huge fan of rules of thumb, but in this case, mm -hmm. I think at least provides some guidance is if you're going to be living somewhere for four years or more, that tends to be the tipping point where it makes more sense to buy rather than rent. Mm -hmm. If you're going to only be somewhere for two years, buying is probably a bad idea. If you're then departing that area, you don't have an option to rent that property uh, and instead you have to sell it. And the mm -hmm. reason for that four-year uh, estimate is that when you purchase a home, you have to pay closing costs. Mm -hmm. Typically, they're 2 to 5% of the, the cost of the home. And when you sell, you have to pay even more. You have to pay anywhere from 5 to 9% roughly of the home value. So if you're buying and selling homes too frequently, you're burdening yourself with these additional the closing cost payments. Mm -hmm. And so typically over four years is roughly the point where we break even where mm -hmm. the uh, amount that we're saving because we're no longer paying rent and we're building equity outweighs the um, the cost, the, the uh, closing costs that we have to pay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge because if you're entering a, a two-year residency program, you know, you're not, you, you most likely won't be around more than two years, but you never know. Those plans may change. You may end up being in that place for six years. You may take a full-time job with that same organization or something in the same city. So thinking ahead regarding where you intend to be uh, and, and whether it makes sense to buy or not is, is important. Great. Yeah. And, and would you ever say, I, I know that I would have been guilty of this. So young doctors should not look at real estate as an investment at this point, right? When you're evaluating your initial financial future, would you agree with that or no? Well, I, I... So I partially agree with that. I think it's true that it's important to have a home, and especially if emotionally that's important to a person or a household, where mm -hmm. you want to feel that you have your place, you can do whatever you want with it, mm -hmm. then to change the floor plan, I mean, all those things, and we get satisfaction from that, and, and uh, we have a greater um, uh, satisfaction from an enjoyment of, of life when we have a, mm. a place we really call home. So there's a benefit to that. Uh, I, I would, however, say to people that whenever you're parting with money, think of it as an investment, right? Because then it mm. forces you to be more disciplined. So mm. an example comes to mind here, and this is perhaps not as applicable for, for beginner homes, but um, I have known you know, lots of physicians over the years, and a particular example comes to mind of a couple with a couple of children who outwardly were very, very prosperous. They bought a massive you know, multi-million dollar home. Uh, they each drove the latest uh, model uh, sports car, you know, $100,000 cars. And to all intents and purposes, they looked like they had it made. They were both physicians, I obviously, to be relevant here. They're mm -hmm. both so two, two physician household. And as we became closer, they began to open up to me and they admitted that they had made a terrible mistake. They had overextended themselves with this house that was way beyond affordable for them. It was unaffordable. And this, they were both specialists, so they were making between them five, six hundred thousand dollars a year. But it was very difficult for them to make the house payments because they bought too much house. Mm -hmm. On top of that, they had the car payments. So uh, here's an example where uh, it's really, really important to to think about uh, every aspect of a purchase, including considering it as an investment and not overextending the household and, and buying what you can afford and make sense within your budget. So, so I would characterize it that way. You, you don't mm -hmm. want to buy a place that's too expensive just so you can have a home. You do need to think about, well, is this a, a good location that will retain its value or grow its value? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, it, um, is the amount of debt we're taking on appropriate within our budget? Can we make mm -hmm. these payments comfortably? 
if we're a dual earning household and then we have children and one of the parents says, hey, you know what? I, I, I'm willing to give up my career for five years. I want to stay home and take care of the kids. Mm-hmm. Well, now, you, now your income is halved. And so if you have a high mortgage payment on, on the palace or a castle, mm-hmm. uh, the mansion uh, purchase, then it makes it really hard. And now, now life decisions are, are impaired because you're under duress, under financial duress. So uh, I would always suggest to people, you know, buy, make the right purchase and do think of it as an investment because it is. I mean, unavoidably, it's an investment. Uh, you are parting with money and it may go up or down. And these are things you need to think about. So just going on that story that you said, because I I would love your thoughts on this. So there was a time probably, you know, when I we were buying our first home and we're a two physician household where um, people would say banks will give doctors any amount of money they want. Like, don't worry about it. You'll get the loan. Right. Is that still true nowadays? It is largely true. Uh, What are banks in the business of doing? They're in the business of making loans. So when times are tough, and now, of course, they are with interest rates higher, uh, banks typically will become more picky with the clientele they deal with. And often the people who are deprived of credit would be the the folks who have the the lower quality income, right? The the more questionable income, lower numbers, uh, lower credit quality, and so on. Uh, which still leaves physicians as the people that the banks want to do business with. Mm-hmm. So yes, to some extent that that statement is true. Of course, it's not an open-ended blank check. They're not going to give them, you know, a ten million dollar loan to a physician household earning three hundred thousand dollars. Right. They may well waive the down payment and and do various other things that they may say things like, "We'll ignore your existing student debt as we're calculating your income to debt uh, ratio ratios and so on." Mm-hmm. Uh, all of which allows physicians to buy more house, bigger homes. Right. That's what I was one. thinking. So you can, you physicians could potentially get into trouble if they're thinking like, well, they wouldn't give me this much money if I couldn't afford it. But the bank doesn't necessarily have your best interest at heart. They have their own, right? Correct. The person who's making the uh, uh, the sale to you, so to speak, who's providing that funding for you is, is probably getting a commission on uh, getting you that loan. So they get more commission on, on a million dollar loan than an $800,000 loan, huh. for sure. So, so how do you, do you have a way you've all to gauge, how should a young doctor gauge how much house they could afford? It all comes down to the budget. So very important mm-hmm. is an item we haven't gotten to yet, but this is a timely place to insert it. We need to have a budget and the budget is a written document. It's not something we think we have in our heads. You really need to commit it to writing precisely so we can see the numbers and really get a sense of what is affordable and what is it. On the website, under the budgeting section, there are there's a lot of information, including some sample budget documents, Excel spreadsheets, mm-hmm. uh, and you can pull out any one that seems relevant to you, add and, subtra- add and remove uh, rows for different expenses and sources of income. Amazing. Make sure, do that as an annual exercise. It's always harder the first time around because you have to think about well, where's my checkbook so I can see the checks I wrote as expenses and where are my credit card statements so I can see those expenses. So it takes some work, a few hours of work, but you do it once and it's much easier every subsequent time. I do Mm. this every year. I have a budget Mm. set up. I I update my income numbers. I forecast to the best of my ability, all the expenses based on prior years. And when when you hit a, a sort of steady state as a family, then your expenses are fairly predictable. Right. So that's the good news. And that, and with that type of document, it's much easier for you to say, look, we can afford 
$1,500 a month here of payments on a home, but we can't afford $2,200. Keeping in mind, we, we talked about the motives of the funder, the, mm -hmm. the bank that's lending mm -hmm. money to you. It's not always a bank, of course. It could be some other financial institution. Uh, the fact that they're often compensated depending on the size of the loan. Your real estate agent is compensated depending on the price of the house. So it's better for your real estate agent to sell you the million dollar home rather than mm -hmm. a half million dollar home. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. double their, their earnings on that deal. Mm -hmm. So it, it was important for all young physicians to realize that the system is set up such that other people benefit, people with agendas, they mm -hmm. benefit when you buy a bigger house. But you now have to make sure that you're not blowing up your budget. So right. you have to be the voice of reason because you're the only one in that transaction who is the voice of reason, who knows right. truly what your constraints are. That's why you need to have the budget before you purchase the home. Mm -hmm. So you're very disciplined. And uh, when the bank says or the real estate agent says, hey, you know, we can arrange this. So you've got uh, zero down payments and so now you can afford the $800,000 home. You need to look at your budget and say, no, I can't. Because mm -hmm. sure, I'd love to have the $800,000 home, but the, the house that really works for me is the $400,000. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. my starter home. I can make all ends meet with that. I'm paying down my loans. I'm putting the maximum amount into my retirement plans. So I'm not falling behind there. And I'm making payments on the home. And 10 years in, you're in a much better situation. You've got a million dollars of, of net worth, whereas you had minus 200,000 to begin with because you own right. loans. So you're right. in a far different place. And now you can afford an $800,000 home or a million dollar home comfortably. Mm -hmm. And if not, then you buy the $600,000 home. And 10 years later, you buy the bigger home because now you can almost pay for it in cash, right? right. Um, so, so again, this is, brings us back to that word I used earlier, discipline. Mm-hmm. Stay, stay within yourself. Another way to put it within the context of the budget is live within your means mm -hmm. or under your means. When you live under your means, you have, you're, you're making all those payments and you have even excess cash left over, which you can use to accumulate for a down payment on a bigger home, to more aggressively pay down your high interest debt, uh, and or to put even more money into your retirement plans or fund your kids' 529 plans. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So, but, uh, Understand your loan payments, be smart when you're buying your house, buy, you know, only what you can afford in terms of house and recognize that banks and real estate agents have their own agendas and they're not necessarily looking out for you. Um, and, you know, I love the idea of start small and go up. We we have owned two homes in our entire lives. We, I came out of residency, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, but we started with a very small home. Um, and sold it and then took that money, invested it in our, what we call our forever home, the home we're in now. And um, I wouldn't have done it any other way. And, you know, I remember very clearly when we bought our current home, banks saying to us, you guys could afford so much more house. Like, why are you, you know, but my husband's very financially conservative and I'm so glad for that. But, you know, fast forward, we were able to do everything to our now house that we've ever wanted. And over, you know, the 20 years we've been here, it's become our dream home in our dream location. We wouldn't do it any other way. So I think that's so important for young doctors, too, is recognizing like you have your whole life ahead of you to get that dream home and make it exactly what you want. Your first home doesn't necessarily have to be that. Um, so what else? What comes after the house? So uh, after that, we will talk about insurance products. Mm. Broadly, there's disability insurance, life insurance, property and casualty insurance, medical insurance, uh, and potentially um, 
malpractice insurance, which I know sends shivers down the spines of physicians, but it's something <laughs> to be aware of. Some of those items are typically covered by the employer. So medical insurance and malpractice insurance typically are covered. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But it's important to ask, uh, to always know what are the benefits precisely? Where do they end? In mm -hmm. the case of something like malpractice insurance, are there limits in place that the employer is covering me for? And is it possible that I might have a claim that's higher than that? If that's the case, then we need to have a conversation about, uh, when I say we, not me and the physician, but the physician and uh, a source of insurance about uh, possibly topping that up with, with some private coverage. Mm -hmm. So um, returning to some of the others, life insurance may not be necessary when you're a young mm -hmm. physician if you are single. There's only mm -hmm. you. If you don't have any debts, you don't necessarily need life insurance. Now, a lot of people will tell you you do because, of course, they want to sell you life insurance. Right. Strictly speaking, you may not need the life insurance mm -hmm. uh, because really life insurance is there to help your survivors if you're no mm -hmm. longer there for some tragic reason. Mm -hmm. But if there is no such list of people, then purchasing insurance uh, is not necessary. You could choose to do that because some types of insurance, term life insurance, are relatively affordable. Mm -hmm. So you could choose to do that with a view to starting a family or having debts that you'd want covered in your estate uh, if you pass and so on. Uh, so you can do that. And because term insurance is relatively affordable, you can put that on your to-do list. Uh, but I think it's important to, to recognize that... Uh, you don't want to just fall into this trap of, well, everybody else is getting this. I should get it as well if you don't really need it, because that $1,000 a, a year that you may be paying, you could be doing something else with. Right. Um, so then we move on to disability insurance, which mm -hmm. arguably is an item that should be at the top of the list. I probably should have started with that. Yeah. Uh, because all of those things we want to achieve financially, all that prosperity we're looking forward to that we worked so hard to be able to attain through that higher doctor salary all of that comes from us working, right? We have to actually do the work over 20, 30 years to gain, to earn those salaries, which go into paying down our debt and building up all these assets that we want to have, including the home and retirement plans and so on. So we need to, in lieu of that income, if for some reason it disappears because we're disabled, we need to have some protection in place. Mm -hmm. now, I know physicians, really uh, everyone um, who is told they need disability insurance um, resent that because you're suddenly told that, look, you're finally getting good salary, but hey, hey, you're going to have to take a cut out of that and set it aside for this thing that you maybe have never heard of and never thought you need to budget for, and you may never use. Mm -hmm. And, and it's expensive, right? I mean, relative sure. to life insurance, disability insurance is much more expensive. Correct. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and some of the arguments that people put forward are, you know, I, I paid 20 years for, for disability insurance. I never needed it. It's a scam. Don't get it. But of course, this is a probabilistic thing. Right. If you paid for, for disability insurance and didn't need it, you're the lucky one because you right. can to make your maximum salary, whereas someone yeah. who is disabled is going to get maybe 50 cents on the dollar, right. uh, which means it's good because it's better, 50 is way better than zero, mm -hmm. but it's not as good as, as earning fully. So um, just because people didn't need their insurance, whether it's life or disability insurance, doesn't negate the need for the insurance. Mm -hmm. It just means they happen to be that percentage of the population that didn't need to cash it in. Uh, but disability insurance is crucially important because you're building up the debt um, and you need that income to come in. Um, so it, it is, it is I, I think disability insurance is a wise thing to do. It's, it's there to protect your human capital all mm -hmm. the, the knowledge and expertise and experience that you've studied for uh, and spent endless hours uh, on the wards uh, earning. 
Uh, so you need to protect it. There's a lot more that can be said about disability insurance because it's one of the more complicated financial products we will buy in our lifetime. I want to ask you a specific question about something you said in our last episode, Yvonne, about how people who sell you things, including insurance products, sometimes have an ulterior motive. I don't want to make a blanket statement. But as a young doctor, you know, you're trying to make these good decisions and you've listened to this episode and you're like, disability, I'm definitely doing that, disability insurance. How would a young doctor seek out what you would consider a reputable uh, seller of disability insurance so as not to get fleeced? Right. So very important. Thank you for uh, prompting me on that. So the the long answer could be left for folks doing this on their own by reading. And the website does contain a whole section on disability insurance, including how to select the better insurance companies and also what to watch out for when, when you're talking to the, uh, the uh, insurance brokers or agents, because they do get a commission. So they have an incentive to sell you more rather than less insurance. And sometimes they get better commissions on certain products. So they mm-hmm. may have incentive to sell those. So uh, I guess addressing the second part last of how do you, which people do you deal with? You should avoid, um, or rather it's better for you to seek insurance coverage from an independent broker who can represent mm-hmm. a whole slew of different companies' products huh. so that they're not beholden to an employer who is always going to to incentivize them financially to sell their own products. Mm-hmm. So what often happens is physicians look around, they, they've, they there's a lot of advertising, of course, that's thrown at physicians. So let's say you follow up on one of those things, someone comes to campus, they give you their card, you call them up and they say, yeah, I've got all this stuff and, you, and, and, and I'll offer you all these things. And you, you know that it's important to have some independence in the process. So you say to them, well, I prefer to work with someone who can show me products from a lot of different companies, not just yours. And the agent will say, oh, that's not a problem. I am allowed to, because we're a very forward-looking organization, <laughs> I'm allowed to sell you products from other companies. But what he's, he or she is not telling you is that the bonus he gets at the end of the year is based on how many of the company's own products he sells. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. he gets a higher percentage commission on selling that employer's products. Mm-hmm. So there are still those dangers. That's why you're better off going to the independent brokers who really can scan the bigger picture and, and help you uh, more objectively. There's still bias there because they still get paid more if they sell you more insurance. Mm-hmm. But at least you've gotten rid of a part of that conflict of interest. Mm. Uh, regarding how to get an appropriate policy, there are certain features of policies that we know are better than others. So mm-hmm. one of them, if we're looking at uh, disability insurance, is that you would prefer to get one that allows you to specify your own occupation. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It means that you can specify uh, as, as narrowly as possible your speci- your your specialty. Let's use that word. Uh, that helps you because if you suffer some debilitating injury or disease and you're no longer able to do your own occupation, you may be eligible to receive, you should be eligible to receive those benefits, the disability mm-hmm. benefits, but you may still be able to earn money doing other things like consulting or doing other things. So this is ideal because it's known as double dipping in the industry mm-hmm. because you're dipping into the disability benefits, but you're still able to dip into income. Mm-hmm. It's far less advantageous for you if um, the, you can't specify an occupation because then as long as you can do something, 
-hmm. the insurer may say, well, you could still do something. I mean, you can't do your other job, but you could do something else. So we're not going to cover you. You're mm -hmm. not eligible for the payment. So the more narrowly defined your own occupation, the more likely you are to get coverage and still have flexibility to, to do other to things. To do other things. Huh, interesting. Uh, all right. The next item that we should be on the lookout for is the phrase non-cancellable and guaranteed renewable. Hmm. What that means is that you uh, that insurance product, which you may really like, is there for you forever as long as you continue to make your payments properly, right? The insurance company can't change the terms of that coverage. They can't water it down uh, so that you are eligible to, you know, to continue paying to, to receive it. And that's important. Mm -hmm. And then another item is some sort of an automatic increase rider. It may come under different names, but basically what that means is that as long as you're continuing to pay uh, and you're in good, good standing, so to speak, uh, as your income goes up, your coverage can go up as well without you having to be medically tested. Huh. So with life insurance and disability insurance for any significant amount, a few hundred thousand dollars of life insurance or more or disability insurance in general, uh, if you want higher coverage, you may have to submit to, rather when you first apply, you may have to submit to medical testing. And if there are red flags, you may be required to pay higher premiums or you may be deemed ineligible and uninsurable. And that would be really bad. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you want to avoid medical testing. And of course, as we age, eventually we're going to have some red flags. Something's going to happen. Right. Uh, so we want to avoid having to be medically tested again. Mm -hmm. And having one of these automatic increase riders is a good way to do that. Now it's a note, mm -hmm. especially as our income goes up, mm -hmm. we want to be able to protect more of it. Right. So we want to be able to, when we take a new job and now our income goes from 200,000 to 260,000, we want to be able to, to maintain that coverage. Often it'll be 50 to 60% of our income is what we're eligible to cover. Mm -hmm. So now we want to cover a hundred from a hundred thousand. We want to get coverage to 130, half of the numbers I specified before. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to be medically tested again. So if I have one of these riders in there, I can do that. Now I still have to pay more for more coverage. My premium will go up mm -hmm. because I'm receiving higher coverage, but sure. I don't have to submit to the medical testing, which could render me uninsurable. Hmm. Amazing. That's, I, I wish I'd known all this stuff. Um, so going back just real quick about to life insurance, because mm. I know this is something that may, like I know as a young doctor, I would have wondered about what's the number? Like, is there some kind of formula where let's say you are married and have kids or know you will eventually have kids, right? Is there a number where based on this income, you should have this much in life insurance? Is there a calculation that simple? There are such simple calculations. The challenge with them is that they can be really abused by the people selling you the insurance. So mm. there are probably two, two types of calculations. One is uh, referred to as life value. And it's important to note this is often used in legal cases to establish the uh -huh. value of a person's life if there's mm -hmm. liability. So um, how does that work? You would typically, the simplest version of this is to look at the person's age. The person, let's say, is 40 years old. They're expected to work until age 65. So they've got 25 work years left in them. And if they're earning $200,000 a year, we would take 200,000. We'd multiply it by 25 uh, off the top of my head. Not quite sure what that number is, but it's several million dollars. Yes. Like uh, I five guess, million. Uh, five million. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, so, so then the agent would do that calculation and come to you and say, okay, the appropriate amount for you, your life value is 5 million. 
and, and therefore we should insure you to that amount, which might obligate you to pay $4,000, $5,000 a year, even mm -hmm. for supposedly cheap or for the cheaper term insurance alternative. Mm. And in many cases, maybe too much. You may not mm -hmm. need five million. Right. The other method is to calculate, to add up all the expenses, all the mm -hmm. liabilities that the household has. So you would take the, the home mortgage, let's say that's 500,000. And then let's say there are two children and they're very young and you're estimating that it'll cost $300,000 to raise each child to age 18 and then 300,000 for them to go to college. So it's 600,000 each for two children. That's 1.2 million. Add it to the half million, you're at 1.7. And you keep doing these calculations. You say, okay, my spouse, I want to make sure there's money aside for my spouse's uh, retirement. So you build up the numbers and you might come up with 4.2 million using that method. Mm -hmm. So now you have two numbers, the 5 million and the 4.2 million. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the insurance agent, if she is uh, very skilled and smooth, might say, <laughs> so she might first do you the life value calculation and, and put the $5 million number in front of you. And then she's going to say, oh, but but don't worry, I've got your back here. You don't really need that much. Let me show you how I, your friend, can <laughs> know that you need less. And then she'll show you the $4.2 million number. And you'll go, wow. oh, my God, thank God. I don't need to pay five. I don't need five. I only need four which is going uh, to be you know, 25% or 20% less. So right. you go ahead and buy the four, but then you go home and you say to your spouse, hey, honey, I got us this great deal. Uh, instead of uh, buying 5 million, I realized I only need four and we're only paying X thousands of dollars a year. And she says, yeah, but wait a minute. We have a million dollars in assets and I work. And <laughs> those calculations realize, well, actually we could have gotten away with three. And if you take that into account, actually we could have gotten away with 1.8 million. Wow. So, and there's a, I go through that type of example with slightly more precise numbers on the website. So if anyone huh. wants to see that line of thinking, because that's really what we need, right? That's the nuance that, that takes us beyond the, the one-liners, those rules of thumb to what's most relevant for our household. And this is what I find most challenging, but most important when I do this teaching in that we all hear those one-liners and they make our life simple and we all like to keep it simple. So so if we can latch onto one of these things and just use it, we feel comfortable. But it often is not the best thing for us because our circumstances are all nuanced. Mm -hmm. So the hardest thing is to get people to pay attention long enough to understand the nuance. Yeah. That's the challenge as an educator in this space. So of all the things you just said, one thing that's sticking in my head are kids are damn expensive. I just can't. I was like, I have three of them and I never thought about how much it cost me to raise my kids. My youngest is 16. So I've, I've spent the money on the first two. One is out of college and one is just about to be out of college. But God, when you think about it like that, dude, they, they better take care of me when I'm old. Lord, <laughs> anything else about the insurance you've all or what's next? So next would be property and casualty insurance. Mm. This is your homeowners, renters, auto insurance. And I would say, I mean, most of uh, most folks, by the time they get to this age, have 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 used these tools before. Most of us uh, have a driver's license. We drive. We may own a car. Uh, we may uh, we're at least renting, in which case we might have renter's insurance. And if we've, we're already homeowners, we, we may have owner's insurance. Uh, so we're familiar with those. And those types of policies come with with coverage on both property and what's known as casualty. These are called property and casualty products. So the property is coverage that covers property as it implies and the mm -hmm. casualty is the liability component in case other humans are injured or god forbid suffer death because of something that we're responsible for that's when that type of coverage kicks in so on the liability side most of these types of 
insurance products that we've already described, homeowners auto, have limited liability. They have maybe $300,000 of coverage or $500,000 of coverage. That may seem like a lot of money. And for most mishaps, it would be. A fender bender here, someone gets uh, their arm injured uh, you know, because you hit them with your bicycle. You know, those sorts of things uh, are, are relatively low ticket items. But on the liability side, if there is a fatality, that can be a multi-million dollar mm -hmm. lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And when uh, victims find out that the cause of their mishap was a physician, they think, okay, physicians, deep pocketed, high earning, they should be able to pay a lot. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that you're covered for a lot because mm -hmm. the lawsuit may be for a lot. And wow. this introduces what's known as umbrella insurance. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's called protection from catastrophic loss or PCL insurance. And this is a policy that you, you purchase in addition to it sort of sits on top of your other policies that we've already discussed. And it raises your liability limits in very, very cost-effective ways. So you could probably, for two to three hundred dollars, you may be able to raise your liability limit from three or five hundred thousand to two million dollars, just for mm -hmm. two or three hundred dollars a year. Wow! So I, I'm specifically mentioning that because that's something useful to be aware of. Whereas a lot of other financial product purchases are very nuanced in the sense that you may need them or you may not. When it comes to umbrella insurance, because it's so cheap. And it provides so much more peace of mind with those bigger liabilities. I consider it a no-brainer. I think this is something mm -hmm. everyone should have. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and you, you should get as many millions of dollars of coverage as you think you need. Um, you know, you can get up to three, four million dollars, or even more for for hundreds of dollars, four or five hundred dollars a year. So that is is probably a good use of money. Ah, amazing! Yeah, as a as a business owner and we own two buildings where people can slip and fall and get hurt and you know our umbrella policy is something that we pay very very close attention to i i didn't realize that even like automotive insurance uh if there was a lawsuit and your you know automotive insurance didn't cover the whole claim that then your umbrella policy would kick in we've i've really just thought about it in terms of our business, but for a young doctor who may not own a business or commercial real estate, it's still very relevant. So mm -hmm. that's that's incredible. All right. So what else? So very important. I'm really glad you mentioned uh, the business insurance because it's important for people to realize that the business insurance does not cover you for private exposures and vice mm -hmm. versa. So if you have all of those products, the homeowners and the auto and the umbrella for your household, that does not cover you for workplace events. So if you also own a private practice, you need those policies for the private practice as well. You need mm -hmm. the, the the regular general insurance and you need an umbrella on top of that. And you probably also need professional liability insurance as a physician, uh, malpractice and other things uh, fall into some of those categories too. So, mm -hmm. so just be aware that if you have a car for the business, it's owned by the business and it has insurance through the business, if you're using it for private purposes, the insurer could say, wait a minute, that was a private use. This is huh. uh, professional insurance here. This is not the same thing. So wow. it, it behooves us to recognize that those are two different functions. And we may, in fact, need multiple coverages, multiple policies uh, to, to distinguishing between the personal mm -hmm. and the uh, professional. Wow. Amazing. Great advice. 
So, okay. So I'm a young doctor. I got my student debt in mind. I have my decision about my house. I've purchased my insurance, including disability and not too much in life insurance. What else should I be thinking about? By the way, I love your summaries. There's so much more <laughs> than what I'm saying. You should go with yours. Okay, uh, so the next item is the rainy day fund or emergency cash. Ah, mm -hmm. And this is something that really every every one of us should be maintaining before we get that first job. Uh, it's just the difference is now we've got larger income. There's more room in our budget to set aside more money. And of course, our bills are bigger and our liabilities mm -hmm. and uh, expenses are bigger. So we do need to make sure that the rainy day fund is growing from the few hundred dollars when we were residents to now a few thousand dollars and then potentially a few tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So, And what are those for? Those are, as the word emergency uh, implies, those are for emergencies, for things that are not budgeted elsewhere explicitly. So therefore... Mm -hmm for unexpected things that happen, like a roof springer leak, where your insurance perhaps does not cover that, or your car breaks down. And again, for whatever reason, the insurance doesn't cover that, or you don't want to use the insurance because you don't want your rates to go up. So mm -hmm. you may need a few thousand dollars for under each of those scenarios. Sometimes we forget to budget for our kid's tuition payment and the $20,000 suddenly comes due. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have cash lying around, what do we do? If we right. resort to using a credit card and we can't pay that off within 30 days, then we may be stuck paying 25% interest on a $20,000 balance, mm -hmm. which is going to blow out our budget. It's going to devastate our budget for, for a month or several. So mm -hmm. we want to avoid having to resort to high interest credit cards, to personal loans that are typically high interest, uh, or to having to sell some of our assets, right? So if I've got mm -hmm. some an investment that I don't want to disrupt, but I have to sell it because I need cash, mm -hmm. that's a problem for my household. So I want to have some cash set aside these days, it's much easier to have these rainy day funds because we can get a very decent rate of return on money that we just keep even in a bank account. Hmm. So two years ago, when interest rates were 0% on mm -hmm. a lot of instruments, that was a problem because any money we kept as cash or what we call cash equivalents, mm -hmm. treasury bills, CDs, certificates of deposit, uh, and so on, money market funds, etc., uh, beyond just the actual cash, you know, money and checking accounts or, or, or physical cash, beyond that, uh, all of those things uh, would have paid us very, very little in interest. So every dollar we put into the, the cash fund is dollars that are not working productively for us. We're not earning a decent rate of interest, they're not earning dividends, and so on. But now we can earn 5% on our cash, Right. Which is very competitive with what we can get on stock markets, especially as they're swooning. So that mm -hmm. is one of the reasons we've seen lots of money come out of stock funds mm -hmm. and flow into things like treasury bills and money market funds and other fixed income securities because mm -hmm. we can earn 5% on those and they can still function as part of our rainy day fund. If we need cash quickly for, for something, we can just mm -hmm. sell a, a treasury bill or whatever it is that we can cash in, even if it's premature, a certificate of deposit and just lose a little bit of the interest, but we have cash. Mm -hmm. And we can avoid having to sell something else that's going to cost us more and or using high interest credit cards. Mm -hmm. So the this rainy day fund, I love that you mentioned that, because as a young doctor, again, like for me, my rainy day fund was what whatever was left over after I did everything I wanted to do, paid all my bills, but also literally went out to eat, 
what bought my vacation, you know, bought my new shoes, like all that stuff. Then I'm like, oh, I have a little bit left that goes in the rainy day fund. That's obviously the wrong way to do it. Right. So as someone who loves uh, rules of thumb and calculators, uh, is there a rule of thumb for that? How how much should you have in your rainy day fund? Of course, there's a rule of thumb. There's a rule of thumb <laughs> for all of these things precisely because it's easier than thinking about the new ones. So <laughs> there, there are sort of ranges of them. One of them is you should keep a rainy day fund equivalent to six months of salary or three months of salary. And then people will say, well, is that wow. after, ta after tax or before tax? And it's like, no, you can have a debate over that. Mm -hmm. And I always say it depends because I don't like the rules of thumb because everything <laughs> is different. So, for example, suppose you have short-term disability insurance, which might give you coverage over six months before your long-term disability insurance kicks in. And, and by the way, the comments I made earlier regarding disability insurance are all about long-term disability insurance. Mm -hmm. But suppose you do have short-term insurance because your employer provided it or your private practice just happened to have that as part of the benefits. Mm -hmm. Then. You have less need of money up front because if the cause for you needing money is that you're temporarily disabled, you're covered because you have insurance for that. Mm -hmm. So you may not need six months worth of your gross salary. You mm -hmm. may only need two or three. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are other reasons you might need money. So you still want to have some rainy day fund. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where when we, we look into the nuance, we start drinking into the tails. We, we understand that, OK, maybe we don't need six months of gross salary, which is $120,000 or some very overwhelming number. Maybe we right. need 30 or 40. Another thing right. to note is that let's say we've decided the correct number is $50,000. And that's mm -hmm. not unthinkable for a household with a million or $2 million in assets. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, one of the reasons that that can work for you, especially now, is because you can get 5% on some of those earnings. So you're really not giving any opportunity up by doing that. But also, if let's say stock markets decline significantly or real estate markets are devastated and you're a renter, and mm -hmm. now is a really good time to buy a home. Mm -hmm. so now you have a substantial amount of money in your rainy day fund. You can just cash that out and mm -hmm. go buy your dream home for much less than you would have had to pay two years ago. So wow. having a, a rainy day fund is also an opportunistic fund, mm -hmm. which allows you to take advantage of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, back to my comment, suppose we're setting aside 50000 for the rainy day fund. I wouldn't keep all of it in a checking account, which is still going to give me basically 0% interest. So right. I might keep 10000 of it in a checking account because I know that in a given month, my bills are ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. I mm -hmm. know my paycheck's going to go in there every 30 months and it's going to help to top it up. So I may mm -hmm. have 10000 in a checking account. And then I might have another 10000 in a, in a high yielding savings account that might give me four, four and a half percent return. Mm -hmm. And then I might have another 10,000 in a short-term certificate of deposit and another 20,000 in a money market fund somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. That fund should not be a retirement plan fund because I can't take money out of retirement fund plans unless I'm almost 60 years old without having to pay a penalty and the taxes. Wow. So as part of your rainy day fund, I've mentioned some of the eligible components you can hold money market assets as long as they're not in these constrained retirement funds like IRAs, mm -hmm. 401ks, and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what have we achieved with that? We've, we have rainy day fund. We have fairly quickly, we can get our hands on $50,000 worth mm -hmm. if we need it. But we're not keeping it all in cash where it's unproductive. We've actually intelligently put it into other vehicles they give us four or five percent, which is very, very decent. I mean, that's way better than we've had you know, in 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, right. It serves dual purposes, a just in case fund, but just in case you have the opportunity to do something great, like buy a house. 
Um, I know we're getting to the end of time here, but I want to ask you a really important question. Should a doctor that's just graduated, that's in their mid-20s, that has a 40-year career ahead of him or her, be thinking about contributing to a retirement fund? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, necessarily, I would say, absolutely, because, because of compounding, it's really, in the world of finance, we have very few natural laws that work in our favor. Right. So, for example, in the world of physics, you have F equals MA. In the world of yeah. biology, you have the Krebs cycle. Right. I mean, these are, are facts, right? They're scientific facts. Yeah. In the world of finance, we don't have many. We have maybe the power of diversification and we have the power of compounding, right? Where the mm -hmm. math is there, right? So, uh, but it's crucially important to make those investments early. So, if you think to yourself, oh, well, you know, I'll invest, uh, you know, when I, 30 years in, I've still got 10 years of a career and I'll probably be hitting my peak earnings. That's when I'll start putting money for retirement. That's way too late. You're huh. going to live a, a stressed life because every time a shock happens to your household, you're going to think, oh my God, I haven't saved anything. And now my earnings in the future are somehow in peril. Mm -hmm. So we must begin early in particular because it builds the right habits. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where the budget comes in. We need to look critically at our budget and figure out where we can save money to clear up money so we can put money into retirement accounts. I, I would say that that's worth an entire conversation, right? It really is because it's so important. And then we can yeah. go into how does compounding work? How does it work for us when we do it with a lot of time, with a long runway? And how does it work against us when we deprive ourselves through procrastination from getting that compounding? Because it's really bad for us if we don't do that early. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that this conversation is so relevant for, yes, young doctors, but honestly, anybody that's venturing into a career, um, especially a professional with high income uh, earning potential. And then specifically to the last point you made about the retirement fund, involved, as a business owner, one of the benefits that I offer my team is a, is a matched retirement plan, right? And every month, like it pains me a little bit, when people participate, because, you know, that cost me money, but I'm always shocked at how few people actually participate. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm offering you this free money. Like it's a, up to a 3% match for us and over your career. That could be so much. And I just can't understand why people are leaving that on the table, except to think they're not considering that as money, as free money. Do you have some advice for people who might not be participating in their employer's retirement funds? It's very simple. And I mentioned that there are a lot of there's a lot of nuance, but that gave the umbrella insurance as an example of a no-brainer. This is absolutely at the top list of the <laughs> no-brainer things you have to do. Really? You must take that free money. You absolutely yeah. must. And and every uh, more detailed article you'll read about this makes it clear that the top of the priority list, if you have that extra dollar, is get the match. Do everything mm -hmm. you can to max out the match that you can get. Good things happen when you do that early. And often, which is to say consistently, you absolutely must do that. Huh. You know, give up well, other things before giving that up. Yeah, exactly. So I was just going to say that if somebody's standing there on the corner handing you a dollar, you don't walk away from that. Amazing. So is there any other, you know, for specifically for our young doctors, any other critical points you want to leave us with? So actually on my list, I have retirement accounts. As I said, I think that that is worthy of an entire conversation. And then another item would be to understand investing, not because you desire to be a professional investor, but just to understand what's happening in these retirement accounts and also outside them. What mm -hmm. should you be doing? What investing strategy should you embrace? Should you 
be chasing all these high flying, uh, glamorous sounding investments or not? Of course, the answer to that is no, you should not <laughs> you should be sticking to that tried and true path that I alluded to earlier. So uh, those are two items that, that are really worthy of consideration as well. Retirement planning and understanding investing basics. Mm. Amazing. So let me see if I got it here. So you're a young doctor. You're finally getting that first, you know, big paycheck. Congratulations. Here's how you should be thinking about it. Consider your student loans and what those payments are going to be. Look at buying a home. Uh, consider your insurance across all of it, including an umbrella policy and appropriate disability insurance. Um, what was after that? Oh, your rainy day fund. Make sure you have that. And it's likely going to be an unglamorously large amount of money, but definitely important. Uh, take your employer up on their match if you have an employer willing to help you with your retirement fund. And then, of course, looking down the line at investing and making good investments as opposed to foolish, bad investments, which is actually what you started with. Yvonne, that was amazing. I actually learned so much and I'm kicking myself a little bit because I'm you know, way past the time when I should have known some of this information. So thank you. For all of my listeners, this is not just applicable to young doctors. If you're any anybody you know, taking your first steps into your career. And honestly, if you're like me in your fifties and are just, you know, learning and, you know, a, a forever learner, this is so helpful. Um, Yuval, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your expertise as always. I can't wait to have you back to talk about the next thing. Maybe it'll be like, if you're in your fifties and are finally figuring out that you need to know more about money, <laughs> watch this episode. Um, Everybody else, if you have a story about a patient interaction, I would love to hear from you for our Tell Me More episodes. Just email me, Christine at ChristineMeyerMD.com. If you are in the business of caring, whether you are helping physicians or you are a physician and have an interesting story or an issue that you think our uh, listeners would want to hear about, please email me again, Christine at ChristineMeyerMD.com. Thank you all so much for being here, Yuval. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Business of Caring with Dr. Christine Meyer. Have you learned a lot by running your own business as a doctor or healthcare provider? Perhaps you're a physician, entrepreneur in training, or someone who has aspirations to own their own business in patient care. We want to hear from you. Join us as a guest on our show. If you'd like more information on today's episode or how to contact Dr. Meyer, visit us online at christinemeyermd.com or send us an email at christine at christinemeyermd.com.